Lord, we, your church, come before you, our King. We throw wide open our hearts and our minds and our wills to you, and we pray that you would use your word by your spirit this morning to equip us more and more to become the people that you mean us to be in this world. We pray this with expectancy and with longing in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Well, as you know, as you have been with us over these last six months that the coronavirus has hung like a cloud over our head, virtually every Sunday, we have put before you a threefold challenge that we believe that God is calling us into as his people at Covenant, to stay anchored to God, to stay connected to God's people, and to stay faithful to God's call to live out a life of love. And there is a whole lot that conspires against those, isn't there? Especially those last two. In his book, Invitation to a Journey, Robert Mulholland reflects that for many today, Christianity is a very privatized, individualized experience. It doesn't enliven and enrich the body of Christ, and it isn't vitally dependent upon the body of Christ for its own wholeness. Neither does it play itself out in the dynamics of life in the world. It doesn't bring the reality of relationship with God and Jesus Christ to bear on the brokenness and pain in the world around us. I think that's a really probing statement, and I think he's right. There are so many ways that this uh, COVID threat has impacted each of us. It has bred fear in some. It has fueled frustration in others. It's forced many of us into isolation. But one way that we have all been impacted to a person by this virus and all of the restrictions that have come with it is that we have been led to have an increased focus on ourselves. It has turned us inward, not inward in reflection necessarily, which I think could be beneficial. Why this despair? Where is this anger and impatience coming from? But it's turning us instead inward in focus. It, it has encouraged us to be bent in upon ourselves. Our preoccupations have become my safety, my health, my well-being, my rights, my distance, my needs, my future. That is an exhausting and unsatisfying way to live, isn't it? That's because that's not the sort of life that God made us to live. Evelyn Underhill, in her little book, The Spiritual Life, says this. I love this. She says, we are meant to be transmitters as well as receivers of God's love. Our contemplation and action, our humble self-opening to God, keeping ourselves sensitive to, to his music and light, and our generous self-opening to our fellow creatures, keeping ourselves sensitive to their needs, ought to form one life. How impossible and unchristian it is to keep ourselves to ourselves. No matter how deeply God means to bless us and make our lives rich, my Christian life 
is never just for me. It is always at some level for the sake of others. Starting into this new year, as you remember, we felt persuaded that God was calling us to become a church that was known more for its love than for anything else. There are so many ways that, beautiful ways, that that has already become and is becoming true of us. But God isn't done with this with us yet. And we continue to believe that this is God's invitation that he is putting before us as covenant church, even amid the disruption of the COVID virus. At one of our recent session meetings, one of our elders said, I'm wondering if a new era is before us as a church where we had been building our life as a church and now it's time to spend our life. By the way, if you happen to miss my sermon on September 13th, when I spent some time revisiting and fleshing out this vision, I really want to encourage you to go back and to make sure that you have a chance to listen to that. So what would it mean for us to be a church known more for its love than for anything else? Well, this brings us back to our COVID calling and especially the last phrase in it. Stay faithful to God's call to live a life of love. That phrase, live a life of love, comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Living a Life of Love is the title of the new sermon series that we are beginning this morning and which will carry us over the next four Sundays. Our series takes us into John's first letter, chapter 4, verses 11 to 21, where John explores at length just what it means to live a life of love. He talks about why it's important, what it looks like, and what makes it possible. But before we begin to make our way through that passage, I think it's really important for us to take a moment to clarify what the Bible is talking about when it uses the word love. And I think that's especially important because that word is used in some form or other 28 times in these 11 verses that we're going to be studying over these five weeks. But when we talk about love, we can use the word to describe anything from fondness for a friend to delight in an outfit to a bad tennis score. So what does the word love mean when Paul and James and John and Peter use the word? Well, as many of you know, in the ancient Greek in which the New Testament was written, there were four main words for love. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his uh, great little book, The Four Loves. One word was for family affection. Another meant affinity for a friend. A third one described sexual desire. But because none of those words capture the heart of God's love for us, the New Testament writers chose a fourth and, and less common word, agape, to communicate what they wanted to express. We'll be opening this up more in the coming weeks. But for now, let me share four dimensions of agape love that are important for us to understand. Because these are the things that set it apart from whatever else we may call love. First, agape love is a way of seeing. It is seeing another person, not through the lens of yourself and your own need or desire, but seeing that person apart from yourself. 
C.S. Lewis says agape love seeks the good of the loved one for that person's own sake. It is wholly disinterested. Disinterested here doesn't mean uninterested, just the opposite. It means not being driven by selfish motives. It is wholly disinterested and desires what is simply best for the beloved. Second, agape love is a way of choosing. Unlike our use of the word, love is not primarily a feeling. It's not a reaction to something charming or beautiful or otherwise worthy of love in the other person. It isn't a spell that is cast over us, which, which takes over control of me. It is more a choice that I make regarding you than a feeling I have for you. New Testament scholar Ken Boas says, this type of love can be defined as the steady intention of the will to another's highest good. Third, agape love is a way of living. It isn't a vague concept or a lofty ideal. It's not a philosophical notion. It is a, it is a, a heart for a person that shows up in our hands and our feet. Intangible steps taken in resources like time and food and money or relational connections being brought to bear for the benefit of another person. According to Greek scholars Quell and Stouffer, agape is concrete. It is love in action. It means doing what has to be done and can be done to respond to a person's need. And last, agape love is a way of giving. There is always an element of sacrifice at the heart of agape love. Agape love is costly self-giving for the sake of others. That's why C.S. Lewis calls it gift love. Great way to sum it up. And biblical scholar John Stott says, the heart of agape love is self-sacrifice. It is the seeking in others' good at one's own cost. The atonement, Jesus dying for us, he says, is the highest manifestation of agape love. Agape love, a way of seeing, of choosing, of living, of giving, that puts the other person first, even when it costs me. Well, how tempting for us to love based on our terms, on how we feel, or what we need, or with nice words that really aren't connected to real deeds, or in a way that doesn't really cost us. Two very different, virtually opposite alternatives. What that means is every opportunity God puts in front of us to love comes in the form of a difficult choice. Self-serving love, the sort of love that wells up naturally in our heart where our love is for ourselves more than anything else, or genuine love, love from on high, which will it be? Let me just share three examples that surfaced just in the course of this past week for me to show you how we're presented with these choices. At the start of the week, I sat down in my chair at the end of a long, long day for me and for Sharon especially. And just as I picked up my book, a thought hit me. You know, it would be a really thoughtful thing to do to go up and give your wife a back rub. Yep, I thought it would as I kept reading, trying to read over the top of that prompting. 
And as I read to justify myself, I began to take stock of how tired I was and what a long day I had had and how much I was ready to get some sleep. But that prompting was kind of becoming more and more annoying, kind of like a mosquito flying around in the room. But then, in a moment, by the Spirit, that that thought sort of transfigured in front of me from a burden that I might begrudgingly carry out because it was the right thing to do to a gift that I could give to a worn-out one who I so deeply love. So I got up and went upstairs. Then a few days later, some friends of Sharon's, not part of our church, brought over their new baby and asked her to pray for them. And Sharon asked if I could be part of that too. When they arrived, I had a list scrolling through my head of things that really needed doing. And I was painfully aware of the ticking clock and a couple of crucial destinations and windows closing on my chance to get these things done. What I was led to believe would be a five-minute interaction drifted into 10, and then 15, and then 20, and eventually a half an hour had gone by and we still hadn't prayed together. Twice, probably at the end of about six minutes, and then again at the end of about 12 minutes, I started to open my mouth to say, hey, you know what, I've got some stuff I've got to get to. But both times, I felt God's prompting me to just be patient, to be present, to trust him, and to give myself to this. And God, by his spirit, gave me the ability to do that. And it ended up being a really sweet and meaningful time, and not what I could have made it, a perfunctory time. And finally, when the time seemed right, I mentioned that I needed to get going, and we prayed together, and it it came at the right time. And then after that, I really don't know how God allowed everything else that I need to get done to fall together. A third example. Yesterday, um, I called to follow up on an order that I had made that had gotten really messed up. Uh, Something had been delivered to in another address We had already been doing phone tag on multiple times, and by the time I got on the phone, I was feeling a bit impatient and like I didn't really have time for this. So this time I got through, and I ended up speaking with the co-owner of this family business. First, she made an excuse, and then she came around to an apology, and then she admitted that her business is really in a bit of a shambles right now, And then for the next 20 minutes, she went on to tell me that her brother had just died of a drug overdose because her sister had just given him some heroin and her other brother was was strung out on meth and she was overwhelmed just trying to keep the tangled parts of her life together, let alone her business. And suddenly, this call wasn't about my order or me at all. God had completely different designs on this call. This was about her and what God was wanting to do in her life. After we had a chance to talk for a while, at the end of the conversation, I said, hey, when I get off the phone, I'm going to pray for you. And I said, no, no, wait, wait. Actually, could I just pray for you right now? And she said, sure, I could use all the prayer I can get. And I said, me too. And I prayed for her. And I can't tell you what a sacred privilege it was to be brought into that woman's heart. 
a way of seeing, of choosing, of living, of giving that puts the other person first, even when it costs us. That's what love is. So with that in mind, let's read what the Apostle John has to say. This morning, in our remaining time, we're going to be focusing in on just the first two verses of this section. So 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, and whoever doesn't love doesn't know God, because God is love. This passage presses us into a radical new way of seeing everything. It begins with the truest thing of all about us, that we are the beloved. It ends with the truest thing of all about God, that he is love. And in between, it spells out what should be, what should be the truest way of all about, the truest thing of all about others, that they are to be loved. So let me walk back through those, starting with the ending point. The truest thing of all about God is God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. When John writes that God is love, he isn't saying that love and God are the same thing. He means that love defines everything that God is and God does. It's kind of like saying Adam Myers is Purdue, or Tom Turpin is insects, or Julia Pierce is horses. Yes, God is holy, and he corrects us and even justly punishes us in our sin. Yes, he is sovereign, and he rules over all things as he sees fit. And sometimes, maybe often, he doesn't answer our prayers in just the way that we might like him to. But even when he is all-powerful and all-holy and all-wise, the king, the ruler, the judge of all, he never ceases to be loving. Is that consistent with how you view God? That love defines everything he is and does? That's what the scripture teaches. It is, biblically, it is a biblically unfaithful way to think of God as one who is perpetually angry with us who we need to scramble to please, and who the Son needs to die to appease. John chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his Son. Henry Nouwen, in his book, Life of the Beloved, says, the unfathomable mystery of God is that God is a lover who wants to be loved. God is love. Is that the most basic way that you see God? What might it mean for you if it was? Second, the truest thing of all about us, we are the beloved. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, beloved, it says in the Greek, let us love one another for love comes from God. Most translations hide the fact that this opening word in the passage is beloved. It's usually translated something like dear friends. And while this may be a in fact, a term of affection and express something of how John views the church, I'm persuaded that it is much more a term of theological truth and it expresses how God views the church. You are the beloved of God. It's the truest thing of all about you. In John Egan's journal, he tells of this life-changing moment when his spiritual director says to him, the heart of it is this, to make the Lord and his immense love for you constitutive of your personal worth. Define yourself radically as one beloved by God. 
define yourself radically as one beloved by God. God's love for you and his choice of you constitute your worth. Accept that and let it become the most important thing in your life. As Brendan Manning says, our identity rests in God's relentless tenderness for us revealed in Jesus. Define yourself radically as one beloved by God. That is truer than your abilities. It's truer than your personality. It's truer than your upbringing. It's truer than your ethnic background. It's truer than your possessions. It is truer than your accomplishments. And it is truer than your sin. It is truer than your failure. It is truer than whatever feelings you have. It is truer than your hurts. It is truer than your losses. It's truer than your struggles. You are the beloved of God. Is that how you see yourself? Henry Nouwen describes the struggle of taking this truth fully to heart. You are my beloved. That voice has always been there, but it seems that I was much more eager to listen to other louder voices saying, prove that you are worth something. Do something relevant, spectacular, or powerful, and then you will earn the love that you so desire. Meanwhile, that soft, gentle voice speaks in the silence and solitude of my heart. I am the beloved. Is that the most basic way that you see yourself? What might it mean for you if it was? The truest thing about God is he is love. The truest thing about me is I am the beloved. The truest thing of all about others is they are to be loved. 1 John 4, 7, beloved, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, but whoever does not, Love does not know God. So a couple of important things here. First of all, let's just clarify what he means when he says everyone who loves has been born of God. Who is this everyone he's referring to? There's not a question about the answer to that, who he's talking about. If you just flip back through the earlier parts of John's letter up to this point, it is clear that this is a letter to those who are in the church and who profess to be followers of Christ. So he's speaking here of everyone who claims Faith, not everyone in the human race. John isn't making some sort of universal statement about the human condition. He is saying just as love defines everything that God is and does, so love should define everything that God's people are and do. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Now stop and just thread that apart with me for just a moment. This is such an important idea. You know the whole nature-nurture discussion. Which one really shapes us more? Do I act the way I do because of my genes or because of my upbringing? Well, it really is, is and should be both, right? And the same should be true in the spiritual realm, according to John. Let me give you an example. We were blessed to be able to celebrate Shepherd's third birthday with him a few weeks ago. So thinking about Shepherd, you would expect Shepherd to act in certain ways, both because Shepherd was born to Brandon and has his genes, and because Shepherd knows Brandon as his father, he is in relationship with him, and he has been shaped by his example and his values. Well, one of the things that Shep got for his birthday was 40 feet of car tracks and several Hot Wheels cars. So Brandon and I helped him. In other words, we did it. We helped uh, him by setting up a track that literally ran from one corner of their house to the other corner. 
The car started in the corner of the kitchen upstairs on a chair under the kitchen table, ran across the kitchen floor, down the stairs, across the family room uh, floor, jumped up over the ottoman, and landed back on track that was on the couch all the way up against the far wall at the opposite end of the house. Shepard was utterly absorbed with this. So were Brandon and I. He, that is we, ran cars down that track for more than an hour, running back and forth from one end to the other, watching the cars zip down the stairs, leap over the jump, seeing which car was fastest. So how do you explain how absorbed Shepard was with all of this? His focus, his energy, his curiosity, his sheer joy at the adventure of the whole thing. Was it his genes or was it his upbringing? Well, knowing his dad and his granddad, whose genes he carried and whose example he absorbed, how could he have been anything different? John says it should be just the same way in the spiritual realm. Jesus taught that as followers of Christ, we are born from above, and that by entering into a relationship with Christ, we come to know God. So if we are Christians, both our nature and our nurture should conspire together to make us loving people like our Heavenly Father is. If God is love and we were born of God, if we were in a sense conceived by God spiritually, if we were given spiritual life by God, then we have in us part of his spiritual nature, part of his DNA. Love is who we are. It is in our blood. And if God is love and we know God, if we are in relationship with God, if we live our life in the atmosphere of God's presence, breathing in his heart and shaped by his example, then love is who we have been raised to be. It is in our hearts. Well, the implication of this is stark and it is probing. If I claim to believe in Jesus, but I'm not, in fact, a loving person, then I have reason to look hard at the authenticity of my spiritual life and my commitment to Christ. John Stott says, for a loveless Christian to profess to know God and to have been born of God is like claiming to be a born of parents whom we do not in any way resemble. It is to fail to manifest the nature of him whom we claim as our father, born of God, and our friend, know God. Love is a sign of Christian authenticity. I had a fascinating conversation a while ago with a woman who gave me the, the gift of being wonderfully candid with me. She said, my husband is the most loving and kind man you will ever meet, and God is so important to him. And me, I'm a mean person, and God isn't really very important to me. She put her finger right on the heart of what John is trying to say. According to John, this is exactly the correlation that we should expect to see. She wasn't feeling sorry for herself or, or asking me to do anything about it. She was just telling me the truth about where she saw herself. I looked at her, and I felt such love and compassion for her. You do know it doesn't need to be that way, don't you? I mean, no matter how long you've been a certain way or how much you're convinced that it's too late, there is an invitation in front of you, even today, for that to be different. As 1 John 3.23 says, believe in the Lord Jesus and live a life of love. 
Perhaps the greatest challenge for the person who believes that he is or she is a follower of Christ but doesn't really live a life of love is trying to figure out why. If, if you think that might describe you, then John would urge you to go back and do some hard looking at your faith foundations. Because either you think you are a follower of Christ and you really aren't, and your faith is more a matter of churchianity than genuine new life in Christ, or you think you are a follower of Christ and you are, but you're not spending adequate time and attention in cultivating and deepening that love relationship with God and the likeness of God that was birthed within you has been stunted and atrophied and not allowed to grow and find expression through you. If you have a question about your spiritual health or if you want some ideas about how to take away some of the impediments to your growth in living a life of love, then contact the church, let us know, and we'd love to be able to give you some ideas and to pray with you. So to bring all this back around to this radical new way that we are, that this passage is calling us to view others. First John chapter four, verses seven and eight, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God and whoever does not love does not know God. So practically speaking, here's what that means. If I am not more born from above, if I'm not carrying around in my soul, God's spiritual DNA within, and if I only know about God, but don't really know God, then when I come face to face with another person, all I am left with is a love that is based on how the two of us can make this thing work. Do we like each other? Do we agree with each other? Are we in the same camp? Can we benefit each other? Then that's where we will start apart from God with the starting point of self. And that's where we will end. Well, if yes to those questions, great. Then we will use each other to meet our own needs and call it love. But if no, then we will quickly label each other and pull back from each other. But if I have experienced new life in Christ, and if I have come to know the heart of my Heavenly Father, then when I come face to face with another person, I have my Father's love within me, shining through me. And with God empowering me, God filling me to the measure of all the fullness of God, as it says, as we've been praying in Ephesians 3, whether or not we like each other or agree with each other or are in the same camp or can benefit each other, I can choose love. I can see with love. I can live love. I can give love. I can put you first, even when it costs me, because love isn't just something I have, it is who I am becoming. We become like this stained glass window, more and more the light of God's presence and his love shining through us for others. So the truest thing of all about others is they are to be loved. Is that the most basic way that you see others and yourself? What might it mean for you if it was? Let me end with this. In his book, The Life of the Beloved, Henry Nouwen says, as a Christian, I am called to become bread for the world, bread that is taken, blessed, broken, and given. Our greatest fulfillment lies in giving ourselves to others.
Earlier this week, Sharon and I were blessed to spend part of the evening on the phone with two other couples that we were in a small group with when we lived in Colorado Springs for 10 years. And one of the couples has just entered into retirement and they've just gone through a six month long process of seeking to discern what God is calling them to next. So they spent time praying and traveling, reflecting, journaling, meeting and praying with others. And what they arrived at at the end of this process both surprised them and was so obvious and right that it was no surprise to them at all. And it was this, God was calling them to remain right where they were and to continue to live out a life of love among the people that God had already surrounded them with. So they have set about doing just that. Summing up that sense of call, this is what our friend Beth said. We just want to give ourselves well to the people that God has put around us. Oh, isn't that beautiful? We just want to give ourselves well to the people that God has put around us. Isn't that what God is calling all of us to? To put the love of God on display wherever he takes us and to give ourselves well to the people that he has placed around us? May God make it so. Lord Jesus, we offer ourselves like this stained glass window and invite you to allow the light of your love more and more and more to shine through us. The love that we can muster up in ourselves will always fall short and come to an end, but Lord, there is no end to your perfect love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.